now. And let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians, uh, and we'll turn to chapter 1 Sunday morning. We're studying the book of Colossians together in a series entitled, uh, uh, Give Me Jesus. And so uh, we pick things up, chapter 1 in verse 24, and you might remember uh, Pastor Paul teaching the morning and evening service last week, but prior to that, we had uh, at least put our big toe into this passage in, in looking at what it has to say and uh, with a full realization that it would become a two-part series. And so we pick things up, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And fill, up, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, of the, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him speaking of Christ, uh, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you so much for this time and worship, and we love you so much. We're thankful that you have put a song in our heart. We're thankful uh, and a need to sing that song to you. We thank you for those who write these songs and that allow us to communicate to you and praise and worship and then those that are gifted lord uh, to actually uh, sing them and to play them and as we turn our focus now to your word we pray that you would open this up and allow it to be a common meal for us as a church family wherever we are to partake of this same portion of scripture from your word we pray that you would give us a sensitivity to your spirit this morning to see just how this applies to each one of our lives and our relationship with you. And we pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Paul's letter to the church at Colossae was written in order to expose and then uh, to correct a number of false uh, teachings that had taken uh, hold in the church there in uh, Colossae. Doctrines that were at this point in time in church history still in germ form, but uh, they would uh, uh, form into a, uh, a formally into a doctrine, a false doctrine, a heresy. Uh, in the early in the second century that would become known as Gnosticism. And it's the idea that Christianity is somehow in need of improvement or somehow the Christianity uh, that is described in the Bible uh, can somehow be uh, improved uh, by uh, mankind. 
and uh, principally in the realm of being, improving it through human philosophy being added to it or improved by virtue of man-made legalism or uh, a false or unbiblical uh, mysticism, a pseudo-spirituality. And then also, as was happening, this idea of just giving up any uh, pretense of trying to strive for holiness or to grow in holiness and uh, turn Christianity into a religion that essentially would just accommodate uh, rather than resist man's carnality uh, and his sin. And in this letter, Paul corrected these false doctrines by simply exalting Christ, by driving home the preeminence of Christ, by driving home the supremacy of Christ, by driving home the centrality of Christ. Paul knew that, that since all of this Christianity is birthed out of the life, the ministry, the teaching of Jesus Christ, and that it cannot be improved upon, all that is really required is to take what it is that he taught and the life that he lived and put it up against all of these false things and that they would uh, uh, wither in, in the presence of that. And so that's what he proceeds to do here uh, in this letter. And he brings the church back to the teachings of Jesus, back to the example uh, of, of his life and uh, compares these teachings that had infiltrated the truth uh, to him. Well, the, the teaching of false doctrines, of course, that necessitates that there are false teachers. And uh, presumably, the false teachers believed what it is that they were teaching. They believed their uh, false teaching, adhered to it, and as a result of that, they themselves uh, must of, of necessity uh, become a victim of their own teaching. Uh, in other words, because what we genuinely believe as human beings, it doesn't merely stay in our mind. It doesn't merely stay in our noggin. Uh, uh, but uh, actually what we believe ends up determining the life that we live. And thus, if we believe a lie, it means that not only do we end up believing a lie, but it means that we end up living a lie, uh, living for a lie. Our lives become uh, the embodiment of living uh, for a lie. Whether it is the false doctrines that uh, these false teachers had brought into Colossae, or whether they are the lies that are foisted upon us continually in our Western culture, uh, that life and meaning and purpose can be found in materialism or in selfishness or all of the other messages that we're inundated with in life. If we believe a lie, we will live a lie, and our life will become the embodiment of a lie. And so there's a lot at stake in, in all of this. In other words, their false teaching was not only uh, uh, producing a false representation of Christianity in the world intellectually, but it was also producing Christian lives that were, practically speaking, 
a false representation of Christianity as well. And as a result of that, in this portion of uh, Paul's uh, letter, he gave the church at Colossae a glimpse at his ministry heart. That is, the practical characteristics that marked his life, that marked his ministry, so that they might take what uh, characterized his life and put it up against what they were seeing uh, in the lives and in the ministries of the false teachers there in uh, the church at Colossae. And in doing this, Paul has, in verses 23 uh, through verse 29 here, he has provided us with uh, a timeless standard for what spiritual Christian service and leadership uh, will look like. As I mentioned the last time that we studied this, uh, it's clear that in this letter, it's, uh, uh, it's manifest in, in uh, chapter two, verse four, it's very clear that uh, these false teachers were very persuasive uh, speakers. And a big part of the problem that was happening in the church at Colossae was that the Christians now were being wowed by that. They were being wowed now by all of the wrong things. And because they were being uh, wowed by all of the wrong things, they were, as a result of that, lightly esteeming uh, the true marks of spirituality and the true marks of spiritual leadership and ministry. And this is no less a problem today than it was 2,000 years ago in the church at Colossae. And so we continue with the Apostle Paul's kind of uh, mini pastors conference, but it's not just for pastors and it's not just for uh, church leaders. It applies to each of us as Christians, whatever our area of uh, Christian ministry might be. Last time we examined uh, the points that he had uh, made prior to where we'll go here today, the necessity of being a servant and the necessity of having a servant mentality in our Christian service where we don't feel that we are too uh, entitled or that we are too privileged or that we are too good to do anything that God would call any of us to do, whether in the building up of the body of Christ and serving it or serving uh, the world in some capacity. He also spoke about the importance of not losing our sense of privilege in our Christian service and also to realize that Christian service will involve hardship, it will involve uh, suffering. And if we bring any other expectation to our Christian service, then we're set up to be uh, disappointed. He all, we also noticed that Paul brought out the fact that joy is a vital ingredient to longevity in our Christian ministries. And, uh, and that the loss of joy is always a catastrophic loss in the life of uh, any Christian in the area of our service. And then further we notice in verse 25 that the Apostle Paul uh, declared that he considered himself to be a steward of God in his Christian service. And in the ancient world, a steward was typically a, a slave 
of a household uh, that was appointed to manage or to oversee the property of his or her uh, master. And so if a man came to a point in the ancient world that he accumulated uh, uh, so much wealth or so uh, many businesses or so much property that he could no longer uh, adequately oversee it himself, he would either purchase uh, a steward, a slave who was trained in this kind of thing, or he would purchase a slave and then teach him uh, to become a steward in order to, to assist him in overseeing and managing his estate and his property. The, the steward would be someone who possessed administrative skills. It would be someone that we might call an administrative assistant to a, an executive today. And it would be someone who uh, would ultimately, we might call this person's right-hand man. A significant characteristic of a steward was that he didn't own anything, though he managed everything. Uh, he didn't own anything of the property. All of that belonged to his master. He simply managed the wealth and the property of his master. And as a result of that, a steward never made any ultimate decisions concerning the master's wealth or his possessions. It was the steward's job to just simply receive orders from the master about how the master wanted his property to be handled and then to make sure that those orders were carried out uh, to a T. And as a result, the, uh, the single great and most important characteristic that was necessary uh, in a steward in terms of their personal character was faithfulness. The steward needed to be, the, the master needed to be absolutely confident that uh, his instructions concerning what he wanted to have done with his wealth, uh, with his possessions, his instructions that he committed uh, as he committed these things to the care of the steward, that the steward that would then carry out those instructions exactly as uh, he was instructed. And Paul brings out all of this in, term, in terms of the importance of faithfulness in a steward uh, when he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 2, he said, let, uh, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And so Paul considered himself to be a steward of God. Uh, that some great wealth belonging to his master, belonging to God, had somehow been entrusted to him, complete with the instructions from God about what he was to do with this wealth, which he then had to be uh, completely faithful in accomplishing. So what it does is it raises a question in our mind uh, and the question it raises in our mind is what is the stewardship that God had entrusted to the Apostle Paul? And Paul tells us here 
in the latter part of verse 25 and on through uh, verse 27. In short, Paul had been given the message of the gospel as a stewardship. He had been given uh, the gospel, and the gospel is simply God's invitation to sinful man, fallen man. God's invitation to us to be saved and forgiven of our sins by virtue of putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. And then to receive everlasting life as a part of all of it and so much more. To become a new creation. To become uh, born again. But there's a little more to this mystery than uh, even uh, that. And you notice in verse 26 that he describes the message uh, he delivered to the Gentiles as a mystery. And what a mystery in the Bible is... It is a truth or revelation of God that is not revealed in the Old Testament. It is a truth that we know to be true from God that we could never otherwise know except that God revealed it to us. And what uh, this mystery uh, was and what it is, it is not that God was interested in the salvation and the spiritual welfare of the Gentiles. Uh, The mystery is not that God loves Gentiles and wants them to be saved and is concerned about their spiritual welfare. God's concern and his love for the Gentiles uh, is represented uh, all over the place in the Old Testament. The mystery was that God would deem both Jew and Gentile in equal need of salvation, and then that both of them needed to be saved in precisely the same way, and that upon becoming saved, that God would make both Jew and Gentile an equal part in the same family of God, and make them an equal part in the body of Christ. And that God was willing to indwell by his Holy Spirit a Gentile as fully as he was uh, willing to indwell the life of a Jew. And the most amazing part of this mystery, Paul tells us in verse 27, and he encapsulates it by saying, Christ in you, speaking to Gentiles, it was a Gentile church by and large, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the miracle of the spiritual birth, Christ coming into our lives by the person uh, of the Holy Spirit, Christ now in us and now in our lives, he is the hope, he is the confidence of glory, that is, he is the confidence that one day we will stand in the glory uh, of heaven uh, itself. And this, uh, uh, this idea here that God would not only indwell a Jew, but he would come into the heart of a Gentile as well, and that God would bless both Jew and Gentile with an equal confidence that both of us, based on our faith in Christ, will one day stand in that heavenly scene. And that this miracle of Christ in us, the hope of glory, being born again, is not the result 
of some kind of secret knowledge, as the false teachers were saying uh, in the church at Colossae, or by performing certain kind of secret uh, rites uh, as they were, uh, false teachers were advocating, but by simply hearing the good news of salvation found in Christ and then receiving that salvation by putting my faith in him and making him my savior and my Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul knew that as a steward, uh, he would one day have to give an account uh, to his master for his faithfulness to what his master had called him to do with the wealth that he had entrusted to Paul. And concerning this faithfulness to preach the gospel of this mystery uh, to the Gentiles. And that played an important part in the Apostle Paul's faithfulness to, uh, uh, to the Lord in his Christian service. Part of the mindset of a steward was not only that the wealth that they were uh, handling and dealing with did not belong to them that they were not free to make decisions uh, concerning it uh, because this wealth belonged to their master. And so there was that realization, I need to hear instructions, I need to be faithful to obey those instructions. But that's just half of the thinking in the mind of a steward. A steward was also very much dominated with the realization that one day, he would then need to come before his master and then give an account for how faithful he was to the instructions that the master had given to him related to that wealth. And that was very dominant in Paul's mind, that one day that he would give an account for his faithfulness to what God had called him to do with what God had entrusted to him. And it created a sobriety in his thinking, a sobriety in his Christian service that is very, very important. And it's intended to, uh, uh, to produce the same kind of sobriety within uh, our lives uh, as well. And uh, the realization that we need to be faithful to what God has charged us to do, what he has entrusted us to, because one day we will stand before him and give an account, not for our salvation, but give an account for our faithfulness to what he called us to do as uh, a steward. And this provides us with a very strong, a very uh, needed kind of uh, nudge or push or uh, exhortation or encouragement to be faithful to God in this area of our lives. You notice as well, as we move from stewardship into verse 28, that Paul declared that he preached Jesus Christ. Uh, the apostle Paul uh, did not preach philosophy like what the false teachers were doing, uh, human philosophy in the church at Colossae. He didn't even teach uh, theology, I mean, in, in and of itself solely. 
much less did the Apostle Paul uh, preach as the false teachers were doing there in Colossae, all of these gimmicks and ideas about uh, secret rites and secret knowledge. He, he had no time for any of it, but he preached Christ uh, uh, Jesus. And if it didn't have something, in essence, he was saying to the church at Colossae here, if Christianity is all about a relationship with Christ, and it is, then what does all of this kind of pseudo-intellectual nonsense have to do with Jesus and a relationship with him? And if it doesn't have something to do with him, if it doesn't take me into a deeper understanding of him so that I can then go into a deeper relationship with him, Paul says, then whatever they're saying misses the point entirely. Christianity is Christ. It is about that personal relationship with him. It is the only thing we will take from this life into heaven as Christians, and and that is this relationship that we have begun with him uh, here uh, in, uh, in this side of heaven, in this world. And that, I like that saying, Christianity is Christ. It's a simple saying. I mean, sometimes the most profound things, the most important things can be said the most simply. But Christianity is uh, Christ. And so you say, it's that simple. How could you mess, how can you mess it up? And yet we do. And it was happening there in, in Colossae. And the challenge is to keep it uh, that simple. And then uh, keeping Christianity, our Christianity, uh, all about Christ in a relationship with Him. The challenge, once we accomplish that within our lives or within a church, is that if you do keep it that simple, that this is all about Christ, this is all about a relationship with him, this is what we continue to come back to over and over again and pointing you to him in terms of of a church, that if we do that and we keep Christianity that simple, the challenge is, is that the false teachers will always come in behind you. And, uh, and then they will try to convince people that it's a lot more complicated than that. And they'll convince you, look at how simple uh, uh, they uh, teach things there at that church. Look at how simple they, uh, uh, they keep things in pointing you uh, to Christ. And, uh, and, uh, and, and then and they come and they say, you're never going to grow deep into the deep things uh, of Christianity in that church or that place or under that teacher because all they do is point you to Jesus and what you need to do is come into what we're selling you in order to uh, uh, come, uh, come into uh, all of the, the, the hidden keys and the secrets to a deep Christian life. And, and you see it all over the place. I mean, you, uh, for instance, uh, in this regard, uh, you have sacred underwear, uh, golden plates, and magical eyeglasses that are all a part of, of Mormonism. Uh, to say nothing of, 
uh, the, uh, their, all of their false teaching in terms of doctrine. Why would you come up with any of those things uh, except that somehow you've left the simplicity that is in Christ and you've allowed someone to draw you away from that simplicity? And then there is the rejecting of blood transfusions and not celebrating birthdays or any kind of holidays and an obsession with the 144,000 of the book of Revelation that, that marks Jehovah, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And again, to say nothing of, uh, of, of their false doctrine in terms of teaching. And while you can take Mormonism and you can take Jehovah Witnesses and, and these, uh, uh, these uh, cults, non-Christian cults, and they're literally the poster childs I mean, uh, uh, of all of this and the most blatant examples of this kind of thing, but they're not the only ones that are vulnerable to this. The fact of the matter is, is that all Christians and all Christian churches need to stay alert uh, to this issue of not being seduced from the simplicity that is found in Christ. And Paul spoke of that to a very orthodox church when he wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 11, verse 3, he said in this regard, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I think all of us have heard the, uh, an acronym of KISS, keep it uh, simple, stupid, and there is an awful lot to that. And I'm not afraid to remind myself of that uh, continually in my own Christian life but also as a pastor in this church. And among other things, the practice of the Lord's Supper is intended to keep our eyes supremely focused upon Jesus in, in our Christianity so that we will keep the main thing, and he is the main thing, the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is, is Jesus. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Why would he say that? Except he can be forgotten. And be forgotten not out in the world, not out in some crazy place, but he can be forgotten by his own people. He can be forgotten uh, in a, a church. So that a church, uh, and all of this is in order that a church doesn't become about a thousand other things supremely, but always remains supremely about him. Because he can be forgotten even in what bears his name, even in what is called uh, Christianity, to the point that it's possible to go into a cathedral, to go into a church, to go into a church uh, service, and then find yourself looking around and asking yourself, where is Jesus in all of this? And uh, where is he being brought forth? Where is he uh, being exalted and pointed to? And it's no less a temptation for us uh, today. And one of the greatest things that a Bible teacher can do as a result is in whatever passage it is that we're studying or we're teaching is to always bring that passage back to Jesus Christ 
in, uh, in some way. Communicate it back uh, to him. And show where in the scriptures the same truth that is being brought out is something that Jesus taught or something that we see practiced in his life and in his uh, ministry. Because when I see that as a Christian, a great peace comes over me and I realize that that is a truth or that is a practice that I can absolutely embrace as a Christian and know uh, that it's safe for me to, to do that. So you, you are like me. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of Bible teaching and I'm in church just like you are. And sometimes you'll listen to somebody and they're teaching the word and you go, I don't know about that. And uh, they're bringing something out in a passage and, and, and there are times where I get a little guarded. It's like, okay, I haven't really heard that before, seen that before, and uh, I don't know quite where he's going with this and, and the point that he's making here. And then at some point in the course of all of that where I, I'm sitting there going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then he brings a verse out of Jesus' life or something that Jesus has taught and then he quotes that verse related to the truth that he's bringing forth and immediately it is, ah, I realize now this isn't something I need to be on guard about but something that I can fully uh, embrace because his voice, the voice of Jesus is the ultimate uh, voice in Christianity. His voice is the ultimate voice in everything, but certainly uh, in, in Christianity as well. And of course, uh, any Bible teacher should be able to take any passage from the scriptures and, uh, and be able to bring it back to Jesus. His life is teaching in some way, as Jesus declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. Every portion of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is uh, about him. Now, in verse 28, Paul talks about, uh, in, in this ministry, of warning every man and teaching every man. And when he talks about warning every man, uh, he's speaking largely about uh, speaking to the unsaved world, as bringing the gospel, the offer of salvation uh, to the lost, but with the warning that the consequences are catastrophic. Uh, for anyone who chooses to reject this uh, salvation. When he talks about teaching every man in all wisdom, this speaks by and large about uh, ministry to Christians. Once we become Christians, now we're in need of, of being taught. Doesn't mean that we don't need to be warned as well. So the, the division isn't, isn't airtight here. There is overlap. Uh, as Christians, I need to be taught and I need to be warned. In fact, the entire letter of the church to Colossae uh, takes the form of a warning and it is directed to uh, Christians. Now notice Paul goes further as we see these marks of his ministry and his, his heart and his character. You notice his aim in verse 28 in his preaching. And the aim in his preaching and, and his teaching and ministry was to produce Christians who can one day 
be presented to God uh, perfect. Or the idea is not sinless, but to be presented to God as mature in Christ. And that is such an incredibly heavy thing uh, to understand and uh, to realize that that was his focus when he stood before a group of people or he ministered to them individually, his entire aim was, how can I minister to this person or to this group in a way that will allow them to come to a place of maturity in Christ to one day stand before God uh, in, in that maturity that is you know, comparable to heaven, is something that is w- not worthy of heaven, but uh, is, uh, would be what we would um, uh, uh, proper uh, uh, there. And that, that was his goal. So in his teaching, Paul's aim wasn't that he would become uh, popular, It wasn't uh, that he would be able to attract the largest crowds or have the biggest church in any particular uh, town. His entire goal was to produce mature Christians to one day present to God uh, Christians who are mature in Christ uh, one day when we enter uh, into the glory of heaven. That was his aim. That was his goal. And it's important that all of us as Christians understand this. It would be easy if your call in the body of Christ is not to be a pastor or a leader in a particular church to say, why is he wearing me out with all of this information that seems like it ought to be taught to a specialized segment of of the church? But it is not merely important uh, uh, only that the pastors and the leadership of a church understand that the focus of a church is not to become popular or not to become big, but to produce mature disciples in Christ Jesus to one day present before God. Because uh, if the leaders of the church understand that that is what we are aiming at and supposed to aim at, that's all well and good. But if the congregation does not understand that as well, then it's a a loss, there's a gap. If a congregation, uh, like is happening here in Colossae, if the leadership has their head screwed on straight and they're doing what they're supposed to do, but the congregation is now developing a different appetite spiritually, an appetite for what the false teachers were teaching rather than an appetite for what produces spiritual maturity in their life, then you can have the leadership of the church all healthy and fine and well represented and then the rest of the church has simply filtered away. So it's important for both of us to understand that. I mean, both groups to understand that. And so you might wonder as you come in into a church, maybe new to a church, maybe not so new to a church, and you come in and you say, why did churches do this? 
why do they have the worship and then somebody comes and reads and prays and from the, uh, from the Bible and then somebody teaches a Bible study? Why in the world do they do that? And why does that guy, meaning me, why in the world does he teach the Bible the way that he does? Why couldn't anybody in their right mind could see that you would just skip verses 23 to 29 and move on to something more interesting if you're interested in growing a big church and exciting people? I mean, well, this guy is lost in his head. How in the world can he possibly think that any of us uh, take this as seriously as he does or that any of us thinks that this is as important as he uh, thinks it uh, is? And, and the reason that I do and the reason that we do is because we are uh, focused on our aim like the Apostle Paul here is to produce Christians who one day can be presented to God Almighty himself as perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. And that's where spiritual maturity is found. It is, I know of no other way to produce it in Christians other than the expository teaching of the Bible, all of the Bible, every line, every jot, every tittle, every sentence, every paragraph from Genesis to uh, Revelation. And uh, Christian, Christian maturity is only found there. It's not found in the gimmicks or the shortcuts that were being offered by the false teachers in Colossae 2,000 years ago, and it's not found in the gimmicks and the shortcuts that are being offered to us uh, today. And so there were for the Apostle Paul, this may seem self-serving, I hope my heart is pure, but J. Vernon McGee used to say, he's long ago now uh, in heaven, we'll see him one day, but he used to talk about uh, sermonettes for Christianettes. And I think he'd be mortified if he saw what was going on now all these decades later uh, after he has uh, entered uh, into heaven. But uh, 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 J. Vernon McGee, the Apostle Paul, they looked at all of this. The stakes were uh, too high. Uh, The importance of this was too great. And as I once uh, learned and first heard from uh, a friend, uh, uh, Sandy Adams, pastor of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain in, uh, in Georgia, but they, in fact, it was on their website, and, and, it, and the, the saying is, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And that's the truth. There's no shortcut around that. There's no way around that. There are no pills to take. There's no vitamins. There's no diet to go on. And that saying, that's just two-thirds of it. It takes a, a whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach the whole world. And that's what we're aiming at. Christians that God can send anywhere in the world. And they're going to do great. They're going to be influential for uh, the kingdom uh, of uh, of God, and uh, certainly uh, the uh, the uh, whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It's certainly necessary for a Christian who intends upon being presented to God one day, uh, mature and uh, and with joy. You notice the repetition there in verse 28 of the phrase every man. Every man, every man, every man is repeated three times in, in the passage. 
And what Paul is saying there, he's revealing that this spiritual maturity that he's talking about is available to every Christian. It is, not avail- it is not something that is only available to some select small uh, group of in-the-know Christians, as the false teachers were saying there uh, in Colossae. Now you notice in the early part of verse 29, as Paul continues to speak about his ministry and, and his character in ministry, that uh, to all of this stewardship, Uh, that Paul had been given by God, that the Apostle Paul, he gave it his all. Uh, He gave his ministry everything that he had. He describes this, uh, his commitment to this stewardship uh, with the word laboring and striving. And the word laboring, it means uh, to labor to the point of exhaustion, uh, even to, uh, to uh, the point of discouragement. There is, there is a laboring that occurs that is physical in nature, where you say uh, to a point of exhaustion, you say, I am physically exhausted. I have given this everything that I, I can. But the ministry also has uh, a mental and emotional, has a spiritual kind of uh, exhaustion that occurs too when you give everything that you have into what God has called you to do. And when that kind of, of, of an exhaustion uh, settles in on you, there can be like a discouragement that sets in on you. Now, thankfully, the, the, the solution to that is just a prayer away of asking to be refilled with the Holy Spirit as, as a Christian, but it's a reality. Striving speaks of struggling and straining and giving everything to something. And so the Apostle Paul, he didn't serve the Lord half-heartedly. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't idle, he wasn't distracted, he wasn't undisciplined, and then hoping that God would cover all of those things in his life uh, with, uh, and all of the gaps that it would produce uh, with, uh, with his grace, all of the gaps produced by his, his unfaithfulness uh, in, in a ministry. And laboring and striving is the kind of effort that the work of God, Paul is saying, is worthy of. And it's a needed exhortation. Uh, I know a lot of pastors, and uh, the average pastor is not in any need of being told that they need to work harder than they already uh, are. Uh, And and that, that it's hard work. But the pastorate can also become a place uh, for lazy, uh, idle, uh, undisciplined uh, individuals to hide in, and that should never be the case. And certainly none of the false teachers in Colossae uh, would have worked for their lie as hard as the Apostle Paul worked for the truth. And so it should be today, not only in his life, but in all of our lives, that no Christian uh, and, and no Christian servant uh, should ever be outworked 
in advancing the stewardship that's been given us by God, uh, outworked by anyone who is spreading lies out in, in the culture, whether in the church or whether uh, outside uh, of the church. And then finally, the apostle closes in verse 29, expressing his dependence upon uh, God for uh, strength. He's talked about laboring, he's talked about striving, but he doesn't want to be misunderstood by any of us. Paul is quick to make clear that his ministry was not the byproduct solely or supremely of his great human effort or his own strength and that the fruitfulness of his ministry was not due solely uh, to his own sweat, his own human effort, his own hard work, but rather uh, the result of the power of the Holy Spirit working mightily in him. Even when we give God our best, even when we give him our laboring, even when we give him our striving, we are merely giving to him what he has first given to us by his Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us the will to do and the power to do of God's good uh, uh, pleasure. And this combination of our effort and God's strength and grace provides the perfect balance that we need. It's the perfect combination that we need to be aware of in our Christian uh, service and ministries because it keeps us from becoming lazy and uh, half-hearted and operating out of this unbiblical presumption that we throw upon uh, God to bless these uh, pathetic efforts that we uh, make on his behalf, but at the same time, it also protects us from something that's just as unhealthy and just as uh, 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 unhelpful, and that is the stress of thinking, it all depends upon me, uh, or the uh, the developing of a savior complex in some way related to uh, Christian service. And there's this perfect tension between the two. I, I, I hesitate to call it a tension because they're not uh, contrary to one another, they're complementary to uh, one another. They're the perfect combination. And Jesus spoke of it, the Apostle Paul spoke about it, and Jesus uh, declared uh, in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the God side of things. And then Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippi chapter 4, verse 13, and he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so you have, uh, apart from me, you can do nothing on one side of the coin. I can do all things through Christ on the other side of the coin, but they make up the same coin. Both of them are necessary. A confidence in both of them is necessary in order to be effective and fruitful in our service to the Lord. And Paul uh, had that uh, wonderful confidence in those truths. And so we close this morning by just recapping where we've been the last couple times here in this uh, study of these verses, what Paul wants each of us to know. He wanted every individual Christian in Colossae to know this, not just the leadership. This is not a pastoral epistle. 
And so this is what he wants each of us to know about our Christian service. The necessity of being a servant, the importance of not losing a sense of privilege in our Christian service, to realize that Christian service is going to involve hardship and suffering, uh, that joy is a vital ingredient to longevity in Christian service, remembering that we're stewards of God's gospel and his work, and the importance of preaching Jesus above all else, uh, that the aim of our service is to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, that we are to give our all to our Christian service, and that to do so with the confidence that God will give us uh, the mighty strength in order to do that. And what Paul is saying here in these verses is that not only should our doctrine distinguish us from the false teachers in the church at Colossae or in the world today, but so should our attitude toward God's work and our performance uh, of that work. And this is how uh, no one uh, in the world who is advancing a lie uh, should ever outwork those of us who have been called by God and entrusted with resources by God to advance the truth and the truth about the most important things uh, in life. If you are within the sound of my voice, whether it's in the courtyard or at home or wherever it might be, if you are not a, a Christian, uh, God wants to save you today and, and what he, th this Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of the confidence of heaven, God wants that to be your hope and your reality today. And for you to just uh, look and to come to, to God and say, God, I am a sinner. Your assessment of me as a sinner is exactly right. I've been less than perfect all of my life, but I believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, in the world, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he could provide a salvation for me, the forgiveness of sins that I could never otherwise earn on my own. I believe he is the Savior. That is the salvation that pleases you, God. So I repent of my sin and my self-will, and I turn this morning, and I put my trust in your Savior. And in Jesus Christ, make him my Lord, make him my Savior today. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and make a miracle of you. Nothing in life will ever make sense until that occurs in your life. Nothing in life will satisfy you until that occurs because it is that relationship that you have been created for. And if you'd like to receive Christ this morning into your life and your heart and become one of his disciples, there'll be pastors up by the big screen out in the courtyard and they'd love to answer your questions and pray for you. And all of you, whatever your needs might be, you say, I'd like someone to pray for me today. They'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer and a closing song. 
Father, thank you so much for these verses and what they speak into our lives and the necessity of them. And again, in the second service, I'm so amazed at the diversity, not only of your Bible and the subjects that you address and the themes and the truths and the realities, but uh, how broad the scope of, of what you focus on and what's important to you even within an individual letter. And we thank you for these truths that we've looked at in these verses the last couple of times. We thank you that your word does not return void, but that they have accomplished something important in our spirits and in our lives. And Lord, I pray for myself, but I pray uh, for uh, everyone in this church, and we pray for one another that you would take us and lead us into what Paul has described here in a greater and greater measure so that all of this represents uh, how we handle the stewardship you have given us as well. And we pray for this work of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.